Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by We Are One Composites and Nukeproof, and we've got competitions and discount codes coming up just for you. We Are One Composites are creating high-quality carbon bike stuff in Kamloops in Canada. The first thing I noticed when my We Are One wheels arrived is just how incredible the finish is, both inside and outside of the rim. They clearly care about doing the best job possible. When you get them on your bike, then the quality of the engineering really shines. I absolutely love the way they ride, finding a perfect balance between stiffness and compliance, enabling you to stick the bike to a line without getting pinged off every little obstacle like some of the stiffer wheels do. I've had absolutely zero issues with them in over three years of using them, and I haven't even needed to show them a spoke key. I'm currently using the Faction 29er rims on my bike, and I would not hesitate to recommend them. We Are One recently launched a Carbon Bike 2, the arrival, which is well worth checking out. Due to the ongoing insane demand in the industry and for We Are One products in particular, we're not able to offer you a discount code on complete wheels, but the team are really keen to do something for downtime listeners. So for the month of November, you can get 15% off rim-only products by using the code WESUPPLY2021 at the checkout over at weareonecomposites.com. That's WESUPPLY2021, all lowercase, over at weareonecomposites.com. I don't know what it's like where you are, but autumn is well and truly here in the UK and winter feels like it's just around the corner. Luckily, Nukeproof have their awesome autumn and winter clothing range in stock, which includes merino tops and socks, warm gloves, a soft shell jacket and a waterproof jacket. As I mentioned last week, the Blackline waterproof jacket is a standout, being the smallest and lightest and probably the quietest waterproof jacket I've worn. And you can win one in this month's competition, which I'll tell you about in a sec. These last few weeks, though, I've got a lot of wear out of Nukeproof's Merino base layers, which come in both a short and a long sleeve option. The Merino wool feels super high quality. I'd say it feels as good as kit that's twice the price, and they're super soft and comfortable next to the skin. Merino helps wick away the sweat, and it also keeps you warm when it's wet, so it's a great fabric for this time of year. The super fine nature of the Merino also means that bacteria has trouble clinging on, so they don't get smelly. These are great base layers and have quickly become a staple of my regular riding kit. You can check out these and the entire range over at nukeproof.com. If you'd like the chance to win your very own Blackline waterproof jacket, along with a set of Sam Hill signature grips and Sam Hill pedals, which are my go-to flat, then all you need to do is to head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash nukeproof, enter your email and the answer to a really easy question before the 9th of December, when Nukeproof will pick a winner at random. Christmas is rapidly approaching and if you're looking for the perfect gift for your riding buddies, a partner who rides or even for yourself, then a subscription to Downtime EP, my collab project with Miss Spence Summers, is what you need. Downtime EP takes inspiration from the guests and topics of the podcast and expands on them and takes them into a stunning print-only format. It's the perfect companion for some quiet time away from the distractions of modern life. So why not get an annual subscription for just £20 plus postage? meaning you'll get two issues a year as soon as they land from the printers and you save £5 on the cover price. Miss Spence Summers have also just launched a pre-order for all three of their amazing 2021 yearbooks, so if you really want a treat, then you can get an order in for this special bundle too. Head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP now to get your orders in or start dropping some massive hints to your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, mum, dad or whoever you think you're in with a chance of getting an awesome Christmas present from. Also coming in hot for Christmas, I've got a range of Downtime Podcast merch available over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. It's top quality, organic, made in a factory using renewable energy and delivered with no single-use plastics. Apologies, I've not been able to get Downtime EP and the merch in the same place yet, but I want to make sure that if I move the merch, the quality and the ethics remain as strong, and I haven't been able to work that out just yet. 
All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. Please make sure you're following the podcast on whatever platform you listen. There's going to be a button there that says follow or subscribe, so hit that now. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it drops. If you can't find the button, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe where there's links to all the major platforms there to help you. Also, a quick follow on Instagram or Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast is much appreciated. All right, this week I'm joined by Emily Siegenthaler. Emily has recently announced her retirement from World Cup downhill racing after being a big part of the scene for a very long time. We chat about Emily's roots in cross-country racing and the illness that cut her cross-country career short but ultimately led to her discovering downhill. Find out how Emily, who has a degree in psychology, has dealt with the nerves and pressure of racing. We chat about the women's scene, salaries and plenty more, as well as finding out what Emily plans to do next. So, without further ado, here's Emily Siegenthaler. Emily Siegenthaler, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Very good, thank you. All good. Excellent. Let's um, let's start right back at the beginning and just tell us a little bit about how bikes came into your life in the first place. Um, well, I started biking when I was pretty small because my bike was and my dad was into biking, so he was like a racer, like mid eighties, end of the night, like end of the eighties. So like, like pretty much at the beginning, and he um. When I was little, so I was born in '86. So when I was little, he was like still racing, and then, and then, and he started to get like into managing um, like a Swiss team. And uh, yeah, so I went with him sometimes at the races. We like um, give the bottles to the racer, and I really like to like be there with him. And uh-huh. obviously, later I bike myself um, with him as well when I was little. And yeah, really, I really, I really enjoy it to be outside in nature. So yeah, that's how, that's how we started. Yeah. Yeah. I guess racing was sort of a natural progression then for you, if you if your dad was doing it. Um, I started racing a little bit later than most of the, like I would say cross country people only like when I was like about 12, I was starting to get like more races, but because I was doing cross-country skiing as well in, in the winter, and that I started to race that a little bit earlier. Also, okay. because my dad was doing it, and we we're doing it together, and we have a good, like, good resort here near where I grew up. Um, and then I was doing both, kind of when I was twelve, thirteen. So it got it started to get pretty intense. But uh, yeah, of course, it was a natural progression. I wanted to try it. And then when you do like more and more serious racing, like more on a national level and it's starting to do good, obviously it motivates you to, to continue. Yeah. How structured were, were things back then for you then? Cause your dad was, um, was coaching a very high level, right? Um, yeah. So I think I was a pretty structured kid as well. <laughs> That's a bit of a, like my dad had a big role for sure, but I think he always said, like the, I, I was always like so willing to like go ride after school. And I remember when I was about 10 ish or so after school, I said, Oh, can I go bike? And I was like, yeah, I don't have, I don't have time. Like, but you can go, like we have that um little place where you can run and like do exercises. You no, know, it's, it's called um Baco Vita. And it's like uh-huh. all the people can go and there's like different posts and you can just, go and do the exercise and so my dad knew I was there and I was just like looped that for like half an hour an hour maybe and then come back home so yeah, yeah I was pretty like independent already with like you can you can really call it training but 
I was I, I wanted to do like just as the pro that or like the, the good guys he had on the team for sure and I think I was like so motivated it was like oh my god she's crazy <laughs> but yeah um he helped me a lot as well awesome awesome how and how far did you go with the cross-country race inside of things because it got pretty serious didn't it oh yeah he got really serious I think it was it, it, he got a little bit too serious as well and maybe that's why like you know it all like came crumbling down at a point um obviously I was dreaming that to go to the Olympics when you start to like win races on an international level and you like you're like a junior and you get to the elite and you see like you have a really good progression um the really like different things about then than today like the races were longer were like half an hour longer and also they didn't have like under 23 categories for the girls so you were like a junior and then straight straight like with 19 you were like getting to the elite where the like the riding time in the race doubles so from one hour you go to two hours and like oh i didn't really notice that when i was racing but i think like it had a big like effect on my body and I needed to train so much more. And then obviously after like European champ title as a junior and World World Cups, it was pretty serious. And then, yeah, my body started saying no and I started to get like um, sick all the time when I tried to like train a lot. And then, yeah, I was like, oh, I can't do this anymore because it's like I can't train and I don't have fun. And when I'm racing, I'm always like, feel like I'm going to get sick again. So yeah, it was pretty like it was pretty hard, but um it was a good choice in the end because I think yeah. downhill was like way more suited to my personality. Yeah. And I discovered that just only when I had like I had to change disciplines. Yeah. Do you think it was like an overtraining kind of thing at that age that that was causing those sort of illnesses or you, Yeah, yeah, you have, for sure. Yeah. For sure. But I think that's a problem with like that um, that transition, like I said, from juniors to elite. That under twenty two category is so important for you to like still have a shorter race and as well like win races when you are under twenty two. Because I was like in the elite, I was like doing top thirty, and I was like in the best under twenty three. But yeah, you know, you you don't really feel like you're doing great, great, you know. Yeah, yeah, and then you want more and more and more, and and the level is just too high for you at that moment with that age. And obviously, like I wasn't really showing any signs of overtraining, but I think my immune system just like started slowly started to like crumble, and then um, I had like the mono, like the mononucleosis, a second uh-huh. time, which shouldn't happen ever because yeah. when you have it once, you have like the normally your immune system protects you and then after that it was just like impossible for me to like get back to like the level that I had before so obviously it wasn't as fun (laughs) (laughs) did it take a long time to sort of for your body to get over that once you stopped the cross-country racing yeah it's hard to know because you don't really push your body in the same way but I I in my opinion, I, I think there's still a trace of that because okay. if you feel like there's not a lot of like research or studies about the mono and what effects it has on people. And it's like really hard to like know because it's so different from people to people. But when I started down here, like obviously it's a pretty intense sport and like your whole body is like 
so sore when it comes to the finish. So I had a lot of trouble in a cross country to digest um, lactate and like the acid. Mm-hmm. And it was the same in downhill, to be honest. It was just shorter. So it was like, <laughs> it was hard. It was just like, but it was just shorter. And it got yeah. better over time, but I think I will never be, it will never be the same as before that. Okay, interesting. So was downhill like an obvious choice for you? Were you, were you already enjoying kind of the gravity side of things and playing around more on bikes than just, just a cross-country thing? Or was it something you sort of went looking for when cross-country you know, wasn't an option anymore. No, I was always like technically one of the best rider in the field. And when, when the course got technicals, I was always better than obviously when it was like long uphills. And I had like, <laughs> I called it back in the day, like a free ride bike, 140. <laughs> now I would say all mountain bike. It was like my free ride bike. And yeah, like it was like, I was always riding with it when I had the time. And obviously when, when I had like problems with my health, I really wanted to bike and I was like not noticing anything unless I was like going full gas, you know, uh-huh. like, unless I was like pu- really pushing. So I could do like really nice, like you would say like enduro loops or whatever Yeah. without having any issue. So I just started to do that more often. And then I had like, there was like a marathon race, um, in Eastern Switzerland and my dad was there with his team and there was like a they called it they called it marathon downhill back in the day it was like a must start type of race yeah and I did that with my free ride bike (laughs) (laughs) and and I won this like and I was just like oh this is so cool like because we had like combined the two like I love must start but I love also like going downhill and it was like it was really good so then People was like, oh, yeah, you should try to do the Swiss champs in downhill, blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah, it all, it all got had, out of hand pretty quickly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Swiss, Swiss national champs was one of, your, one of your first downhill races, right? That was the kind of era when everyone was wearing skin suits and stuff, I guess. Yeah, it was my, like my, my first, like my first ever race. And lucky for me, like the track it was in Belvald, which is still like an ISS Cup right now. And it's not like a very technical track and like it had a few jumps and people were like oh yeah like she's gone racing she's not gonna do any jumps because i yeah i didn't do any jumps but then (laughs) i got the bike like like two weeks before i think or something and my team manager at the time from like the scott um xc team it was a good good downhill race or like not race it but it was pretty good in technical as well so we went together and like looked at the track beforehand and then i did all the jumps and and he was like oh yeah it was like it was pretty sketchy like i was not really in control but i was not afraid and then and then yeah i got second in that race which marianne sana was still racing she was like podiuming world cups back then so i was like oh so cool like i was like and everybody was so welcoming helping us me and my dad couldn't like get a tire off the rim for example it was like such hard tires we were like oh my god like what is this <laughs> and then all the people were like helping and helping my bike set up because obviously what set up all wrong so yeah it was a good, very great experience yeah that's awesome second place at your your first proper downhill race is uh is definitely going to give you some motivation to keep going especially behind mariana like that um 
but you didn't mess about. You went, I think this was 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. you were on the World Cup circuit. What Talk to me a little bit about how that came together. What gives you the confidence to go, all right, I'm going straight to World Cup? I think it, it was because I was already like racing World Cups for ages, like as a junior and then as an elite woman in the cross country. And then I was just like, um, I talked to some people there and I saw like the gap to Marielle was not that big. And and uh, back then it was Gary Payer who was uh, with Suspension Center who was like pretty famous back then, like as a suspension guru. And he helped me a lot and um, he had a little team back then. So it was more of a like, privateer kind of stuff because like I didn't get any financial support but uh, he has some good riders that his son was pretty good back then as a junior as well so we he like so oh I can, you can come with and we can go train in Italy and whatever and then from I I was like enjoying it so much being by on the bike and being with other people and I don't like the competition itself like really was the factor number one, but it was just like trying to like get after one goal and improve. And it was just like more of that side that was like really, yeah, really enjoyable for me. Yeah. 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 And at this point, were you already in your psychology degree? Had you started that? No, no. Um, back then I need to think, (laughs) um, I was at uni for sure. Uh Um, so I started psychology, yes, but I, like the sports psychology thing came after. And obviously when you, because from 2009 on where I got on, on the Scott, let's say factory team. Yeah. Um, then it was like a lot of traveling and everything. So I, I kept studying, but it was like, I took like a few semester more to do, to like finish the whole thing. It was pretty stressful, but um I always did that I always like had like we're pretty used to like have school and the training also when I was like a kid so it didn't really trouble me that much yeah fair play that's pretty impressive to put away a psychology degree and a a sports psychology uh like postgraduate study whilst racing world cups it's a full-on schedule yeah it was it was pretty full-on I think the masters are the, the worst because is more of a research um oriented um psychology neuropsychology study so that, that was like pretty full on and I was on pivot at the time but um yeah you it's like marine and all these like younger girls now or like younger racer they like they they need to study at the airport after <laughs> before race <laughs> like it's you get used to it but then when you don't have it anymore you're like oh this is so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet. So first World Cup, am I right in thinking that was Maribor then, 2008? Yes. How yeah. how was it? What do you remember from that first downhill World Cup? Um, I remember well, I, I had a flat tire in quali, so that's the main thing I remember. And I think it was that year from 2007 to 2008, it changed uh, the qualifying uh, quota from 30 to 20. Uh-huh. And I think we went like 28. And I didn't really realize, like, I had to qualify, actually. Right. <laughs> you know, like, I was like, I don't know. Because for me, it's like, it was my first one, so I was not really. And then when I had a flat tire, I was so terrified that someone is going to catch me. And, yeah, so I didn't really, like, try with the flat tire to go back, like, down. And then I was like, 
obviously almost lost and I was like oh we'll change the tire and go again because that back then the, the it was on the same day quality and race yeah and then Gary's like no 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 like you didn't qualify and I was like oh really <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it was like pretty disappointed um but I mean it was a great experience because the track was pretty cool and I with the bike I had at the time it was like such a big beast pretty heavy beast so on this type of track it was like like it did make it easier to ride like a rock garden and what from what i was like used to ride a low cross-country bike yeah <laughs> a little bit different yeah. so what what were the big challenges for you then to kind of get up to speed i guess with downhill racing was it more mental or physical or skill based it sounds like you had a lot of you know very good physical base from cross-country very good skill base kind of almost naturally what what were the challenges for you to get you know further and further up the pack um it was like it was a little bit of everything physically obviously I had a good base like in intensity but it's still like not the same and with like like eight or eight years of like endurance training you you like you lose a lot of explosivity and like obviously that was like more important in downhill. So I had to like uh -huh. try to compensate that. And obviously like I was pretty like lighter than I was that I'm now. <laughs> so obviously the, the whole like um, upper body strength thing was a big, big issue for me, especially with the bikes being like 18 kilos back then. Yeah. Um, I, like on, on, on longer tracks, like I couldn't hold on. Like it was impossible. Yeah. So you can't really make that up though. You need to like train and train and train and with the hours that becomes like less of an issue, but you can't like catch up the time, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then obviously like try not to crash because with that bike, you like, you feel like you're invincible when you first get on it from what you used to, you know? So I was just like riding so fast without thinking. And then I remember like Miriam and all these girls were like calling me the crazy one. Because she, they were like, who is that? Like, I was like out of control all the time. And then obviously, like, I started crashing a lot. And that I had to get like under control. But it took me a few years <laughs> to to get out of that under control for sure. But um, yeah, it was a pretty steep learning curve, I guess. And then when mm -hmm. the like the bigger injury came into play, then obviously that curve started flattening. Yeah. What about the mental side of things? Was that a, a very different challenge from the cross country? Yeah, of course. But I was enjoying so much. I think like mentally from the stress that I had, obviously like the only big it different is like the year long in the start gate. And that was like a lot more stressful to me than being on the master line with all the other girls. Okay. And from that I had like a lot of stress like I need I needed to learn how to like eat maybe like eat a bit less than in a cross-country race because you need as not need as much food or whatever but yeah I had like all the stress in my stomach so I would have like trouble with like puking before the start and all this stuff that I had also before but then <laughs> like the stress is so much bigger so yeah at the beginning I, had, I was like oh damn I need to go puke now because I felt yeah no but it was like really bad because I couldn't control it and okay it was more like a, it was a mental thing for sure like because everybody's watching you and it's like 
it was pretty pretty hard to get it under control but yeah it happened it didn't happen for me like to me for years now yeah how is that just experience and time or have you found techniques that help you manage that stress in that in those circumstances yeah obviously there's a little bit of both like it's all like strategy i guess like you need to like figure out what to eat and when and then also you need to like feel prepared and then if we feel prepared and ready you have like obviously a lot less stress but I didn't really know what I was doing back then so obviously it was hard to like feel ready um but I think it was part of the process of learning the how to be a donor racer yeah I've read somewhere you use breathing techniques a little bit as well is that true yeah obviously because well when you like at that time when you finish your warm up until the start like you go into the start gate that time is like for me was always the most stressful so when you feel like you're starting you like get hot and like have all these little signs that you like you're not feeling well then obviously like um focus on your breathing and breathing to your stomach and like um visualize at the same time as all the stuff like that calm me down and help me like regulate that problem yeah are there any other techniques that you've kind of come across through your studies that you've brought into your racing that have helped um it depends on the situation um there's a lot like i'm someone that um does a lot works a lot with preparation mm-hmm. so the more i do it beforehand with my like setting like setting goals in a different fashion for whatever that is that i want to achieve like like results or like on my riding technique or mentally how to want to feel if i like if i define small goals and like um try to achieve them during my race weekend that really helps me to like stay on path and not like get too carried away my emotions and um obviously now in the past like three years with cam that really helped because we could like exchange a lot and like not only on lines but like also how we feel on the track and um that really helped as well it's it it doesn't need to be like a a sport psychology technique it can be like really simple things like a a playlist or whatever you do to try to like be in a good mental state before you run yeah helping get yourself into that position ready to be in a flow state i guess that's the ultimate goal for a lot of riders it feels to to have that that flow state when they're in their race run and not think about anything else yeah but you can't really like i i learned that even if you don't achieve that perfect flow, flow state you can still like um even though you don't feel ready sometimes i had like um really bad runs like last training runs or whatever or really bad feeling and then you cannot turn it around like eventually uh-huh. if you like execute what you planned beforehand anyway whatever like the mental state you're on sometimes like people are really stressed into the gate like cam had some races where she like went to late to the start gate and sometimes it was one of the best runs like it doesn't really matter of course it helps for you but it doesn't really have a direct effect on your riding i think yeah because what you do when you leave the start gate is up to you whatever happened before and then if you switch on and focus like on 
the execution of the movement or whatever you planned. And yeah, it's all to help with like feeling emotionally prepared. But then, yeah, it is what it is when you left the target for sure. Yeah, and it's different for everyone, I guess. I think I've heard some riders say they they kind of almost perform better under stress. So like if things are going wrong in those couple of minutes before getting into the start gate, or like you say, they're late or they forget their gloves or whatever, sometimes those are their <laughs> best runs. And then for other people, that could just send them into pieces, I suppose. Yeah, like that's what's really interesting about it. It's because people are so different. And even when I see like, all the riders have to start. Everybody has different routines. Some people are have like a stopwatch, like beeping, and they need to do like step by step every time the same. And me and Cam are like a bit more freestyle. And people are comp- some people, other people are completely freestyle. Like it really depends on what makes you feel good. Like when Noga Karem, that enduro rider from Israel, is a good friend. She came racing a few walk-ups this year and she was like like nobody's talking at the start like what's going on like it makes me feel so nervous and she was like so shocked how everybody was in their own bubble and she really didn't feel comfortable with that um like environment yeah and sometimes she was like laughing and then she would feel like like some people were like looking at her like what is she doing like and (laughs) we had like a good laugh about that because obviously like every discipline and every like background of rider is a bit different but um yeah you need to work out what works best for you and that's the main thing yeah 100 percent. and and you it seemed like you started to work some things out kind of 2011 was your first podium i think at a world cup at wyndham Mm -hmm. and then 2012 uh, again kind of consistency started to come more podiums what what do you think was starting to click for you is it just getting time under your belt and and more experience or had you worked some things out um I think a big change was like that Florian Pujan was in the team came into Uh the team uh I think it was 2010 or 2011 I can't really remember but when once she got into the team and she was like probably the most consistent rider back then like she, she she won one walk up, but I think from her riding and talent, she could have like win so much so many more. And um, we had a kind of a similar um, stature, like she was like same weight as me, or like, and I could profit so much from like her experience, her riding, and I made a lot of progress riding with her, um, and I think that had like a big impact on on me yeah um the years before like to oh nine and ten i think i had like also a few injuries like two times my hand like oh eight my hand oh nine my hand and then like i had a little bit of a problem with my lower back in fort williams in in 2010 and that like slowed me down a lot because obviously i was like what is this like i i crash and i get injured and when i was a cross-country ride i was kept on crashing nothing happened to me so um yeah that was like a little bit of a yeah a learning curve as well how to get through injuries and getting back where i wanted to be with my riding yeah for sure and then 2015 you moved so up to that point you're you're on the scott team then in 2015 Mm -hmm. you moved over to pivot which those are two very 
different teams, I would say, looking from the outside anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did that come about and how did that move work out for you? Um, well, it it started like Florian uh, was on a team until um, 2013. And at the end of 2013, um, we could feel in the team that because we didn't have like there was Brendan Furcloth in the team, but he wasn't really bringing the result that they wanted him to bring. And uh-huh. he was bringing anything, a lot of different stuff. Like obviously marketing was, he's like a, a really good rider to like having a team, but they're like putting a lot of pressure result wise on us. And Florian was doing really, really good. Like she won more cups and she was on the point of probably every single race. But to me, it felt like they didn't really care as much about like the girls results. Cause we were like, uh-huh constantly in the top 10 with like both on the podium sometimes but yeah and then they didn't really Florian left the team because um a contract didn't like get renewed or probably like financial was it was like no we can't afford it anymore or whatever yeah which I think was like a big mistake but you could feel like they wanted to change up the team they couldn't really figure out how to tell us or something. And right. then obviously that 2014 was like a transition because I knew the team is going to like change it. I'm probably going to have to like leave. But then I was kind of stressed because I was racing or like riding a Scott bike since I started ride bikes. So yeah, I was on yeah. Scott since I was like a little kid. And for me, it was like really heartbreaking. You have to leave and get like race for another brand and i couldn't really get my head around it until i was like okay this is neither time maybe it can be a good thing and then when i first um actually it was true elliot jackson Elliot jackson yeah. was then a ride on the team and he told me ah, oh, i think you should talk to bernard because um there was like some stuff in the team has gonna change and he was like yeah i think michaela is not gonna be on the team anymore and then maybe um, Bernard will have a spot for you because they were searching for a European rider. And I was just like, okay, well, ask him. And then um, we got talking and I had a really good feeling with Elliot and Bernard. And yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy. I made that change because it gave me like a, yeah, it gave me a lot of boost to like evolve in, in my riding. And also like, I think, even though Scott was a big team, I think Pivot was like more supportive in a sense. They go like, oh, you're a pro rider. And my my status was like way more recognized. Um, Interesting. From yeah. Pivot. Yeah. yeah. And a really, like I say, a really different team. Like Scott seems like it's more on the serious end of the spectrum and Pivot seems to be a little more, more on the fun end of the spectrum. How important is that that fit of an athlete into the team environment? Because they are all very different, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was everything. Because when I first came into Scott, everything was like new to me. And I think it was a good fit also because I came from cross country. So like the mentality was like not as different. But then when you start to like hang out with people that think completely differently about racing than you do, like Bernard and Elliot, and especially now the Kiwis like Ed and, and, and Matt, it was just like, to me, it was like eye opening. I was like, wow, like what is this? And because of my background, I was like sometimes putting so much pressure on myself. And I think 
that's also one of the reasons why I couldn't like uh, achieve all I wanted on Scott because like that that pressure on myself like was putting me down and then the team pressure and everything the staff was like I think to me it was like the social skills were like really missing to like start to recognize what a rider needs and how to like help that rider achieve his goal or her goals and with pivot it was the complete opposite like I had all the freedom I wanted and um then I could like regulate the pressure myself because they didn't really put any pressure on me at all yeah do you think it helps with Bernard being a manager but also a racer like he, he has a really a, a good understanding of what everyone's going through oh yeah and like like I said, this is just a different mindset. Obviously, he knows I want to do good and he, he he also wants to do good. That's not like the point. If you're a racer, that should be like a number one point. You're not questioning um, like someone's will to do well because that, you think that's, that's, that's really everyone wants to do well. And so he just like, I feel like they were trusting me with, like everything they 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 support everything and I was just like oh this is this feels amazing you know because it like freed me I think like also um having people that have like different like skills than I have like they 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 ride like on a level that was just like wow this is such good riders it's insane like with also jumping like I learned so many things being in Queenstown with Elliot and and burning and just like try to imitate the riding yeah and yeah that was like really precious to me that i could like have that environment nice good stuff and i mean you were settling into the team and then 2016 you had a fairly rough injury i guess with a ruptured acl and torn meniscus in whistler i think mm-hmm. what was it like um kind of recovering from that i read somewhere that you you've put quite a lot of focus on your nutrition to help speed the healing process yes so obviously yeah it was a pretty it was a bummer because um I was like it was like my second year on the team and I was at a couple of podiums and I think my riding was really evolving but um yeah like it also like taught me that having an injury like that can also like be really beneficial for your mental uh, strength also for the physical strength and yeah like you said anyway I was on the on the verge of like going to into a vegetarian diet um diet for other reasons uh-huh. um because I felt like I didn't want to eat animals anymore I would just want to um I don't know it was just felt like the right time and then obviously I was like when you when you become a vegetarian and you want to transition to a vegetarian diet you need to like also have a more of an interest for food because you need to compensate and like really look into what you're eating. Yeah. And yeah, so that also like was a little bit at the time where I got to know um Cami. Uh-huh. And then she was like gluten-free at that time. So I was eating a lot, a lot of like gluten from the cross country, like pastime, whatever, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that was like yeah. a little bit my yeah, the carb loading that you need. And so I had to like transition into that as well because I was like finding it really interesting. And I grew also my knowledge thanks to her and thanks to my own interests. And then that, yeah, 2017 was one of my best season coming back from injury. So 
that shows as well that yeah it's it can be beneficial when you put a lot of work into also other aspects than just your writing yeah definitely so yeah i was going to say 2017 on paper definitely one of your best seasons i think third in fort william fifth at Leergang, third at Lenzerheide, fourth at mm-hmm. monson Anne. incredible set of results would you put some of that down then to some of those changes you made in the off season or or were you just on a a progression that you managed to maintain um there's a different factors i think for, of course like the the fact that i didn't have that much pressure because i was coming back from injury and i was just like oh i'm just trying to do my best really and i don't want to really like put myself any like top 5 goals because who knows how my knee is going to handle it and yeah that helped for sure and then when you get into the season and get good results straight away it's just like that helps so much like you you get a first good race and then you're like okay now like I already like kind of have that one good result I can just enjoy the rest and then it just keeps happening so that was really good to see and I think I was feeling great on the bike and yeah like the New Zealand um the months of in New Zealand helps always to like be ready when the, the season starts and yeah it was just I didn't have any it's probably one of the only years with 2021 that I, ha- I didn't have any injury <laughs> throughout the season like so it was like it was probably the season I enjoyed the, the, the most obviously there's some other riders were injured and like that always plays a role but um yeah it was definitely definitely good memories yeah yeah I was gonna say you've definitely suffered your fair share of injuries over the years and it's it must must be quite hard to to deal with that as an athlete is it something that you've you feel you've got better at managing injuries and dealing with you know getting back up to speed um I don't know (laughs) I probably got better but it doesn't help like when you get older as well like you feel like you like I saw with my knee like I don't know if it's bad luck or it's just like the way I'm built but since I had that first knee injury and then four years after I got the second one and then like last year my my repair the CL from 2016 broke again and you're like like you you think like you're doing probably like all the things you can but it keeps happening so mentally it's really hard and most of the injuries I had like I didn't feel them after like a collarbone or the elbow I had before was in Lanzerheide like I don't I can't really tell which elbow it was but then the knee is something different because you have it for the rest of your life you can't really bend it fully like you always have a little bit of pain and that stays like and that's the most difficult thing if you have an injury like that that like mess up with your mind because you you know that if you hit it or if you like crash on it you're gonna feel it so yeah that was the most difficult thing and I I I got better like to deal with injury but it got harder with time as well yeah yeah I definitely feel that it takes a lot longer to recover from things these days than uh than when I was Mm. half this age yeah Um, yeah you mentioned you mentioned Cammy you guys uh, met kind of, I think, around 2015, 2016 timeframe. What's it been like um, being with Cami as she's been on this steep part of the progression curve? You mentioned that curve earlier. 
and she's obviously on that bit where there's a lot of progression to be made. It must have been quite interesting to to watch and be part of that. Oh yeah, of course. Like um when I met her, I think it was um end of 2016. She was obviously like an enduro rider back then and then wanted to train with my dad and um that's why that's why we met and we started training together. And already back then in training, like I could see how um talented she was like balance wise and also like from her studies like she could do everything every sport like she was good at it and I was pretty impressed I was like whoa and then from a riding perspective as well like she was not afraid and that's the first thing I noticed because I was like that as well like she was like going so fast when we were just like chilling and I was just like and she obviously she crashed a lot I was just like you need to chill like if you ride like this all the time you're going to get so many injuries because I had it before as well and she learned really quickly and now you can I'm really proud because now she's like such a consistent rider and yeah she wasn't really before so that's a really like great aspect of her riding that she can um like manage the risk so well and maybe if she risk more she would get like more wins but Obviously, she could like risk an injury that would probably maybe end her season. So I think that's also maybe a wise choice because she's also on the older spectrum of like the riders field. But um, yeah, like it was amazing to see. It was pretty hard to see first. Like I mean, she started to beat me and I was just like, oh, my God, what am I doing? But actually, it was just her being being like the racer she is, because obviously even now, in the winter when we did like training camps I was sometimes faster than her in some of the training camps when we did full runs but in a race I had like no chance and that's like the race's mentality that she has is like crazy Uh and that's that's just natural to her do you think or something that she's had to work on to get to that level oh no that's (laughs) that's natural for sure yeah (laughs) I remember her dad was like telling me, yeah, when she was a kid, um, she was like, maybe sometimes she got second at a, like um, a race or a tournament, whatever sport she was doing. And her dad was like, yeah, but you need to learn how to lose. And she was like, no, like we don't learn to lose. We just learn to win. And she was just like, we're <laughs> six years old, saying stuff like that. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, she's just like, yeah like a lot of ambitions and stuff. Yeah, interesting yeah. stuff. We so you announced this year that you were making the decision to retire from downhill racing. I'd like to talk a little bit about that. And I'm guessing mm-hmm. for any athlete that must be a really hard decision to make. Like what what goes into that decision for you? Um <laughs> there's a lot of factors obviously. Um there's the, like the injury factor we talked about it like I feel like that these injuries and especially the knee injuries like prevent me for like risking enough to get like the results that I want to achieve. And sometimes I felt like in Leger, for example, like I decided not to jump that road gap. I decided to like make some choices that obviously prevent me from riding on the podium. But I was completely like in agreement with these choices because I was like, if I injure myself again, it's like it's done anyway. Yeah. And 
on some of the tracks, it didn't really affect me that much. Like Leo Gang, if I like braked a bit more in some places because I didn't want to crash um, with my style of riding and the condition that it was, it was like enough for me to like get a pretty good result. Mm-hmm. But then on some tracks like Maribor, if you don't risk it, you get with my level that I had, like it was like really hard for me to even like get top 10. So obviously it got into my head a little bit and I was like, oh, do I really enjoy this? Like, why do I even like race? Because I can still like ride a bike for fun and I don't have all that pressure. And obviously like um, having to like to go to the Stargate and having all that preparation sometimes and all the races think like that. I think like when we look at each other before the race, like starts that thir- 20 minutes window bec- before you start, we all like watch each other and like, Oh my God, why are we doing this? And like a lot of great champions like Tracy Mosley as well. So like this is the worst feeling on earth. That moment, 15 minutes before you go, you feel like you don't really understand why you here. <laughs> <laughs> but then obviously when you like go through the gate and like, execute your run and it's the best feeling ever then after also you cross the line and you achieve what you want and then you push yourself that stuff like that is really rewarding but all the stuff before I was just like oh my god like it's and at the end after doing it for 14 years you're like get a bit tired of that like you know like it's a lot of stress on you and you're like oh actually I don't know if it's worth it anymore but then you have your sponsor and you're like what you want to do um do you want to like give up on everything and people don't really understand it are like oh yeah but you're living the dream life why you give up on it and you're I was just like it's always the same races almost like it's always like the same venues and you've been there like plus 10 times (laughs) so at one point you're like maybe it's it's scary but it's time to like move on to do something else you know yeah, yeah, it must be a scary decision to make because it's a it's a big change, right? Like you say, you've been doing it for for fourteen years on a fairly repetitive kind of schedule, I guess. The the places are yeah. quite similar. The people, there's some new people come and some old people go, but broadly speaking, it's the same. So, yeah, it must be it must be a scary decision to make. Oh yeah, and I like I was beginning of this season, even in winter, I was like, oh, maybe it's my last season, but I wasn't really sure. I didn't want to end like on 2020 because obviously there was like almost no races. And then when I, without like any fans or whatever, and that was like also a little bit of a bummer. And then I got injured and I was like, oh, I want to like end it on a good note, you know? And then, yeah, the season went pretty well. And then in Maribor, after I went to European champs and, wanted to prepare for for the walker because i knew the track doesn't it doesn't really suit me uh-huh. and then in the european champs i was just like oh like this this is too much like i like i'm not really enjoying that racing like i was and then if i stop maybe another younger girl can like also you know benefit from the support of pivot and then like if I didn't feel like it was worthy for me to like continue racing if I didn't really enjoy it hundred percent like I was, and also not only taking all the risk that I needed to take. And then yeah, I had a little bit of a breakdown after European Champs between um, at Maribor, and then I was just like, yeah, it was really really 
emotion and hard for me to like came to that come to that decision but once I told Cam and like told Bernard I felt like a like a lot of relief yeah and obviously like Tracy was there and I talked to Tracy a lot because she just recently also stopped her career so she had like she could like be a, a lot of help to me trying to like relate to what I was feeling and then from now on, like after in Maribel, my race was average, but I felt like my my race run was pretty good. And then from there on, I felt like result wise, it was like average as well. But like in my in my mind, I could really enjoy it way more. Nice. So was it a fun last season then? In the in the end of it all? Oh yeah, for sure. And like with with the the team, we could also travel together, and that was a big change to like the year before. Uh, a little bit of drama because like. Yeah, we had also injury. Eddie was injured and um, Bernard, also his hand was injured, but he could come back from the end. And yeah, the trip to Snowshoe was definitely a highlight because we had like a lot of fun and like having all the spectators back for yeah. my last race. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> I'll definitely never forget. Like it was a great week. My first double header, but I'm I'm luck- I'm really happy I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> fair play what was it like mm. i saw you managed to get all of the uh the downhill women out together for a for a mit for a retirement meal that must have been good fun yeah yeah was, the thing is we wasted like some of them i i know since i started racing like miriam was a junior when i started and so we know each other for ages but you don't really spend any time together like yeah only at the races but then obviously like people are like more or less serious and then you can't really like enjoy as much unless you're teammates or like whatever and i don't know i felt like i wanted to give something back to them as competitors with friends and then i had the idea because it was lens high that i could maybe do a little like aperitivo or whatever you call it and then we uh-huh. got all together and a lot of people came almost everyone actually and yeah it was it was really really nice I think uh, um, Greg Minow was really angry at me because he called me a sexist because I didn't um, invite all the men. <laughs> and I was just like, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny. He kept joking about it, but I think he was just mad he, he didn't get to drink some wine with us. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, he was gutted that he missed a night out, basically. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Good stuff. And you, you've been racing World Cups, like you say, for, for 14 years. How... From your perspective, how has the the women's side of the sport progressed and changed in that time? Because it's a bit, it's a big chunk of time. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, of course, like we always had like periods when my time, like when I started, it was like Sabrina Jonier's time with Tracy Mosley battle, or like him, and then in transition lightly to like Emily Rago, Rachel Atherton, and obviously the Rachel Atherton area was like. A pretty long time of my career yeah so that really affected i think all of us in a sense that um we were basically racing for second pace most of the time <laughs> well i mean it's true like if you know that she didn't have anything or any crash or any injury it would be really hard to beat her yeah 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 that and must be hard to deal with everybody knew that but to me it was like i think it was like also a little bit like into my system like that I was not there to win the race. Yeah. And once um, 
some of the one of the years or whatever when she was injured and out and then Morgan Shaw won the title uh, that one year and we were like whoa actually like it's possible you know and then when I see people right now like Cam when she started the race she doesn't have that like she doesn't have that kind of feeling that you less than some other people that racing yeah and I think that's pretty cool because people are coming and like the young girls are coming from the Junac Valley and they're like, Oh yeah. Like I might win the race, you know, like it, I think it's like they have res- a lot of respect for the other riders. And I know that, but they're not like afraid, afraid to like say that they think they might, they might win the race if they do like what it takes. And I think it's, it's pretty cool to see that. And now the junior generation is like coming up. It's going to be pretty gnarly. Like um, there's still going to be junior next year, but like there's a, there's a few like really, really good riders coming up Yeah, and I'm excited to see that happen. But obviously now like the riders level, especially since 2019 where I could like cra- crash in a run and still qualify. That's over now. <laughs> uh-huh. Like in Maribor, I like barely qualified. Obviously, I was protected, but I was like barely qualified with like an okay run. Like in 2019, I'll have a run like that. I'll be like almost up five. Like yeah. it, it's just like it shows maybe I didn't really progress and everybody was doing like this. But still, when I co- uh, come to a race, I feel like my riding progressed still a little bit because I do, I do things more easily and I feel like I'm faster in two sections, but then yeah. everybody else is so much faster and progress so much more Yeah. Then they're still like pass you on, on this results list. And I think that's like pretty amazing to see. And I'm hoping um, that the field is going to go back to top 20 qualifying. Um, we were talking about that. Yeah. More and more faster women racing yet. Yeah less and less people kind of making it to the final, which seems the wrong way around, really. Um, yeah, I think um, there's, a, there's a few stuff that might need like some changing, but if you want to have more rate, more girls racing, you need to like go back to top 20 because top 15 is like so hard to achieve for someone that's like on the verge. Oh, should I, who has a private and on the verge of like, Oh, should I go? Or should I not go? Yeah. If it's up to any, that person is going to come. And then we might end up with like a field of like 45, 50 girls. And then top 20 will be like completely justified, you know? And I think for the next generation of riders, it will help a lot to like motivate the young, the younger people to come and like try to like qualify for World Cup. Cause now <laughs> it's like, if you have no experience or like if you're a younger rider, it's really, it's going to be really hard. Yeah. How well supported are those, you know, those women racing now? Do you feel like there's enough support from the industry, from the teams there? No. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's, it's okay. It's a tricky subject to talk about. And I actually love to talk about it, but the problem is um, like, I'm also on the side of the people that have like a factory support. I always had the factory support. Uh-huh. But the factory support doesn't mean you you paid, and yeah, that's yeah. what people don't understand that. And like I've done all of my seasons at Scott without being paid, like at all, a salary, yeah. nothing. Yeah. And then yeah. you ride on a podium, and then you you feel like you 
blessed because you're doing what you love, but then you don't realize that a person that is a male top 30, like has like 20K more than you a year or something. Yeah. And you do it top five. And it's like, I didn't want to think about that because it would make me angry and I'll be like frustrated about it. And then I'll just like, but in the end, if nobody talks about it, then it's never going to change, you know? Yeah. And I think now people, when I see with Cam and like, you have a bit more details about what everybody is doing with which team there's some people are making a lot of effort but i think we lack of transparency concerning like the contracts that everybody's having and like we one of the only sports in mountain biking in general not even down there that nobody knows what everybody else is getting like yeah. nobody knows so the brands or the industry can do whatever they want you know yeah. and that's like it's like very disturbing because then you think you're getting a deal if you don't want it for sure there's going to be another girl that's going to get it even though she's not paid because she wants to like have that shot you know but yeah. then it, it hasn't changed really because tracy was doing the same when she was like when she quit for a little bit because she didn't have like the, the funding it was the same and it, i think it got better but it still is the kind of the same problem now yeah yeah do you see any ways to improve that? Do you think there's any anything that can be done either by the riders getting together or, I don't know, things things to help move that in the right direction? Obviously, it takes, like, it takes a village. It takes all of the other parties to like get together and try to like find a solution because, obviously, it would be ideal if we had, like, we would say, okay, we, if, you, if you are an UCI lead team, you get like one rider per category or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. but then that's not really from some of the team's point of view. It's not really in their codes. Like it's not, they can't do it realistically. Yeah. So that's a, like, that would be ideal, but it's not ideal for like the teams, you know, but then some of the people like, um, like Martha Gale was talking about like a minimum wage type of thing. Like if you are an elite team, you have a minimum wage to give, to your riders otherwise you're not an elite team anymore yeah but then is that not going to impact the fact that they can't take like a junior because they can't really afford to give them the minimum wage you know so that's yeah. like it's a lot more complicated than we think it is but the fact that i like i said before the fact that everybody knows what each person is getting would like definitely help because then you cannot hide behind like that pro factory image mm -hmm. and okay i'm giving this much to this rider but definitely there's a big difference between like the top pro men wages and the top women but it was also like it's also appearing like that like some of the top 50 men also get nothing yeah. and with the level that is right now they could easily go into the top 20 whatever so it's not only of course, like men, women difference is pretty big, but there's also like some of the top men get so much and then some of the top 20 men's get like almost nothing. So yeah, there's a lot of improvement to be made, but I think everyone's expertise needs to come together from whatever like point of view they're seeing that thing to like try to make it better from, I think there's needs of more transparency, but yeah, yeah that's yeah. my opinion.
but hard, I guess, to get people to open up sometimes about their salary. Some people are quite quite open naturally, but other people are, I guess, mm-hmm. are a lot more guarded about what they earn because ultimately this money, yeah. I guess the, the ultimate goal is that the money gets spread out a little bit more and maybe that the brands find some more money to put in. I don't know, but maybe it means some people getting paid less and they might be a bit nervous about that conversation. Oh yeah, and then there's like the whole like in racing, there's a, the whole like social media aspect, which like people uh, result wise, they should be paid that much, but then this their social media value is so high that or so low that it affects everything else. Yeah, and also then there's the value of like uh, where you come from. Like, I mean, if you're an American rider, most of the time, I don't know why, but you get like paid more. That if you are like Eastern European, whatever, it's like from to the market. It's related to the market that yeah. you're in, and it's there's a lot of different factors. I mean, I'm not a like a specialist at all in marketing or in the whatever, but yeah, there's so many different factors that come into play that it's it might sound. I think the only fact that you can say is like like top women rider that outside the top five are like barely paid or like yeah there's there's some like make good money and i can see with cam now that especially common sal is trying to like also make an effort but obviously like it's not common sal is like someone there's a brand that's like really into racing and some other people have a more focus of like enduro or whatever yeah and then the budget for downhill is like a bit less because they don't sell as many downhill bikes and that's not the primary marketing object, you know, so everyone's strategy is different. Yeah. It's a complicated one, but uh, yeah, hopefully things will improve over time. Fingers crossed. So I guess we can't not ask the, uh, the big question (laughs) you've, you've retired from downhill racing. Do you have a, a view on what it is you'd like to do next? Um, yeah, so I was um, almost jumping into something straight away. Um, I was in discussion with um, Dorval to maybe like slowly but surely take over the managing, but um, I'll give it a lot of thought and me and Cam also discussed it a lot and I discussed it also maybe with other members of the team and I felt like I, I would love to like being a team manager in the future and like uh-huh. be part of the scene again in that in that regard. But I think it was almost like a little bit too early because it's something like you need to commit to it. Yeah. And if you can't really after a year say, oh yeah, no, now um I didn't really like it. So you guys figure it out because I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, I mean yeah. I didn't feel comfortable with that decision. So that's one point. And the second point is being like 24-7, we camp the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> Being fair a enough. boss. <laughs> and I think that wouldn't really go very well. And then, yeah, us two being like together with the team with other people around, maybe be a little bit awkward. And then I'll have to probably like also represent the brand that I need like to change brands. Yeah. And that would be complicated as well for me. And then most important factor for me was i wanted to like be at home more Uh and if i commit to that i'll be 
less at home than probably as a racer because they do so many training camps and whatever. So <laughs> I will have to travel even more. Yeah. And it would be more stressful and I wouldn't be even riding. So I declined in the end. We, I said, no, we need to find some someone else because I, I feel like I need that year or like that time to like figure out what I want to do because I've done the same things for like so long now that I don't really know what I want to do. Like I I have an idea, but is it really like, if you do it, do you really enjoy it? Yeah. So for once I might take a step back and I'd be like, okay, like I continue, like obviously maybe come to the races or like I started taking up a few athletes as a sports psychologist as well to complete like my degree on the practical because you need to like to do a case case study Uh to finish it and present it so and then I was working as a school primary school teacher as well so I'm doing that in the winter for sure and yeah after that's going to be a bit more chill and then when I'm when I'm going with that and see with like what can I can do as an ambassador maybe or but I think like I really want to take that year to chill a little bit and figure things out as it goes because I'm someone that jumps from thing to thing really quickly but then sometimes I'm like oh why did I just like not take a step back and think <laughs> about the whole thing you know yeah. <laughs> so play. yeah that's the situation right now watch this space all right Good stuff. Yeah, we're get, for sure. We're getting close to the end of our time, but we'll um, mm-hmm. we'll hit up our final four questions that we ask pretty much everybody. The first of those, if our listeners had 150 pounds, which I think is about 190 Swiss francs, to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend they go and spend it on? Oh, yeah, I remember because I listen to your podcast quite a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> I remember these questions. 190 francs. Um I would say maybe a good set of tires. Okay. Um, What's your go-to? Well, it depends what you do with your which bike it is, but like uh-huh. obviously, um, I'm a Maxxis fan, so I'll go with a Minion, Minion rear, so you can ride it in the wet as well, and then double down casing, so you can go yeah. up and down. Doesn't matter. Uh-huh. Probably have a flat. So I think that's like makes a it's a good difference you have like a, a tire with a good casing rolls better like if you ride uphill with downhill casing you like for me it's like pff, it's a hard work <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. yeah a good a good set of tire would definitely improve your everyday riding good stuff all right second question if you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16 what advice would you give her <laughs> um I'll, I'll like I figure it out by now, but like I would, I'll tell myself to just also like chill a little bit, like not be too serious about stuff, and like try to like have an open mind and also listen to myself and not be too hard on myself because I, I think I made myself like having pretty horrible times after, like when I failed at something because I was just like so hard on myself for anything. Like it doesn't, doesn't even come to racing. Like when I, I didn't get the grade I wanted at school, I was just like having a horrible two days because I couldn't get over it. Mm. 
So that would be my advice. I try to like see the bigger picture more often than less. Nice. Good advice. All right. Third question. If you could have a coaching session from anyone past or present, who would it be and what would you want to learn from them? Oh, um, very good question as well. I think I wanted to have like a, for Martha, a manual, manual uh, lesson for Martha Gill. Yeah. Make it happen. <laughs> I'm sure that's doable. Yeah, she's got some skills for sure. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. I mean, she's not the only one. There's like a, there's a sort of Phoebe Gale, new junior on, on the FMD, and she's like pretty good at it as well. But I think Marta is the, Marta is the master. <laughs> good stuff. All right, last question. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Mm. That's a very good question. What do I do every day? <laughs> yeah, I, or, or try I, to do like, every day. I, I, well, you can be serious about it or you can be not serious about it. On the serious side, I try to like, I don't know, be like nicer to people, like be the kindest I can be to people. Um, that's, I think, something that's really important to me. And then maybe on a less serious note, I'll try to like cuddle my, my cat as much as I want. That's also like improve my quality of life a lot. <laughs> nice. I like it. Good stuff. <laughs> that's a lovely way to to wrap up. It's been really interesting finding out more about you and hearing about your career so far in mountain biking i'm sure there's a lot more to give and we'll see a lot more more from you um if people want to keep up to date with what you're up to where's the best place for them to look oh instagram for sure amy fatima <laughs> excellent um that's what I, what I keep up to date nice one we'll stick some uh yeah some links in the show notes people can okay. find that but yeah thanks very much for taking the time out for a chat all the best and, and uh, yeah i look forward to seeing what you get up to in the future yeah, thanks, man. I was it was a pleasure. I'm a big fan of your podcast, so it was a pleasure to be on it. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. Nice one. Have a good day. Ciao ciao. All right, that's it for this episode with Emily. I really hope you've enjoyed it. A massive thanks to Nukeproof. They've just launched their autumn and winter range of clothing, which you can check out over at nukeproof.com. If you want to be in with a chance of winning one of their awesome Blackline waterproof jackets, along with some Sam Hill signature grips and pedals, then you can head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash nukeproof before the 9th of December and answer a simple question to be entered into a prize draw. Also, a massive thanks to We Are One Composites for supporting this episode. Don't forget that as a downtime listener, you can get 15% off all their rim-only products by using the code WESUPPLY2021 over at the checkout on weareonecomposites.com. That's WESUPPLY, all lowercase, all one word, followed by the number 2021 over on weareonecomposites.com. Don't forget to add a downtime EP subscription to your Christmas list and start dropping hints to whoever you want to get it for you. Or you could pick up a subscription for your partner who rides, your riding buddies, or just as a nice little treat for yourself. By getting a subscription, you'll save £5 off the cover price and you'll get each issue as soon as it lands from the printers. Head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP now. While you're there, you can also pre-order a wicked value bundle of all of Miss Spent Summer's 2021 yearbooks, which are going to be hitting the printers really soon. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to represent the show, you can get your hands on a full range of merch by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop with all proceeds going to help improve the podcast. 
If you're still here, then there's a few things you can do to help out. First, tell your rider mates about the podcast. The more people who listen, the easier it is for me to keep this podcast going. Share the episodes on your social media. It's a really awesome way to spread the word and get a bit of buzz going around the episodes. And if you fancy it, a review on Apple Podcasts goes a long way too. All right, we're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, get out and ride. <laughs>